You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since Welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I am Large William. Across the border for me is not two fine American gents, uh, one fine German... Ooh, bumbling out of the gates. I'm back. <laughs> it's one fine American gent. You heard him chortling over there. That's the Prince of Pennsylvania. Todd, how are you, man? Yes, sir. I'm doing okay, man. Getting on, getting on. As good as someone can be doing that is on little sleep, overworked... And is recording this very show for the second time, I imagine. Yes, pretty much. I'm with you, man. So for those that don't know, to pull back the technical curtain or the beef curtain, um, <clears throat> we uh, we recorded this episode. We had some great material. And one of the challenges when you lose an episode, the heartbreak that comes with it is the, the organic things that pop up, the little jokes and the riffs that yeah. you go on. Some of it's great material. You don't want to have to throw it away the second time, but in your head you think, "God, I sound like such a sham," and that's so. You know, <laughs> you do that so if I'm, if the jokes are stale this time around, don't blame us. Exactly. Well, there'll be none the wiser. Only we will. So if we can, well, that's uh, true. If we can fake laugh our way through it, we'll be good. <laughs> How's that? Perfect. Now another GGTMC first. Uh, we're recording on a Friday morning, which is very rare. I'm always at work this time of. Uh, the week, but it's my youngest son, Braden's sixth birthday, so we had to stay, I had to stay home and um, not had to. I chose to. I wanted to spend the day with him. Uh, he needed chocolate chip pancakes and lots of other good stuff, so we had to take care of that. And Yeah, it was good. It's uh, been a good morning so far, so I did the Terry Fox run later, as I was telling you, to pull back the, uh, keep that curtain pulled back, but um, enough about that. Let's, let's talk about what we're doing this week, which... Um, is something I've been excited to talk about, and we kind of had timed it that this would be kind of my return episode to the show. It's an Arrow video show, and this week we're going to be talking about two films that uh, I'm a big fan of. Uh, I know Rick was a fan of as well, and uh, I can't recall, you had seen these before, I believe, correct, Todd? No, not, not before this. Yeah. So in a matter of time here, you're going to hear if Todd's a fan of. Um, 
It's the Luciano Ercoli Death Walks Twice box set, which includes, of course, Death Walks on High Heels and Death Walks at Midnight. Uh, this set was originally put out on DVD, I want to say, by maybe Shameless or someone. It's still early. I've had no coffee. But uh, they put out a great set um, with a CD of the soundtrack. So to show you how far back it's going, they're, you know, a CD. You know, we get CDs too much in any sort of release. But uh, Arrow put this out. It made completely logical sense. These films were shot back to back with a lot of the same cast and certainly some of the same crew. Um, and we're going to get into those in a few minutes. But firstly, let's get into, as always, what we've been watching. Todd, what uh, what have you been getting into lately? Uh, I have been getting into, uh, I finally caught up with uh, Victoria from 2015, uh, the single take uh, film. Yes, it's that, on Houston, uh, I believe, right? Uh, yes, I do believe it is. I got well. I got it from on on uh, Blu-ray from uh, from Netflix, but I do believe it is on their uh, on their streaming. Uh, and I was uh, I was extremely impressed by this. Aside from the uh, the shaky cam aspects, uh, it does take its time, kind of rolling up to uh, the actual plot. But uh, I think that it's very important that it does that because you really get to. Uh, to know the the main character, well, the two main characters, the the main relationship, uh, it gets to you know gel a little bit over a very short period of time, you know, because it's done in real time. So, um, yeah, I, I really like this. Uh, I was impressed heavily with it. Uh, I mean, they they do some kind of stupid things in there, but that's I mean, they're young kids, so you kind of expect that. Yeah, uh, but other than that, it's forgivable. And they um, grow, and the characters really grow on you at first. They I do. found the they guys do. to be pretty obnoxious. Yep. And they absolutely grew on me to the point where you're really pulling for them. And it is, I think it's a technical achievement, but I don't think that the technical achievement gets in the way of, of telling a good story and, and crafting no. an, an interesting film. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree 100%. Uh, went from that to uh, Bridge of Spies with uh, Mr. Tom Hanks, Mark Rylance, um, and a few other people that I can't think of off the top. Oh, I think Amy Ryan's in it, if I'm not mistaken. I think she's Hanks' wife. I might be wrong about that. Anyway, uh, I thought this was really good, too. I was impressed with it. Um, I know Spielberg and Hanks both get a lot of shit, uh, especially now there almost seems to be like a backlash uh, against them, but uh, as I've said before, and I'll continue to say, I, I maintain that uh, Spielberg is one of the best technical filmmakers going uh, from you know from way back when. I mean, he still has it. Um, it has some issues as far as every modern movie does, as far as looks to it. Uh, I, for me, I, th I think that a lot of them tend to look kind of samey. But what are you going to do? Uh, outside of that. Uh, Mark Rylance is out, absolutely outstanding. As he's probably one of the most stoic um, uh, spies you've ever seen in your life. Uh, he just he, he nails it. I believe the script is by the Cone Brothers, uh, and you could spot you know their uh, their uh, uh, what am I looking? What's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, trademarks They're or sort of a little, little their little um, personality uh, in there every here and there. Uh, but yeah, no, this was good. This was really good. Uh, I was again heavily impressed with it. Uh, jumped over from that to Run All Night with the uh, Liam Neeson doing his Liam Neeson badass thing 
and that's pretty much what this movie is. Uh, Ed Harris is really, really good, and the relationship between Harris and Neeson I thought was really nicely, uh, really nicely done. Um, outside of that, I mean, it is you know, pretty, if you've seen you know Taken and all that other stuff, I mean, this is more or less in that vein, um, and it's you know, it, it does the job. It's uh, it doesn't uh, you know overreach, and it doesn't. It doesn't underreach it, you know. It hits the the sweet spot that these movies do. This little cottage industry that Neeson's been uh, carving out for himself, and I'm glad for that, you know, uh, for a guy yeah. his age to to be able to, you know, find his uh, his niche and, uh, you know, be able to do it as well as he does. You know, God bless. I love it. Uh, so I'll I'll keep watching them. I mean, are they ever going to make Pantheon or be on a, a top thirty list for me? No, but they don't have to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. Went to 2013's A Single Shot uh, with Sam Rockwell, and uh, it's basically, if you've seen, it's well, it's along the lines of stuff like A Simple Plan, and I believe this was actually adapted from a novel as well. I'm not 100% on that. But it's more or less um, a guy who's kind of a idiotic shit kicker, uh, has a a bad thing happen and uh, a good thing happen and it kind of coincide and things uh, things roll downhill from there quite steadily. Uh, but it's nice to see um, it's got some uh, some gorgeous uh, some gorgeous landscapes in there and Rockwell really really just brings a hundred percent to uh, to the role. Uh, again, heavily impressed. I didn't expect to be. Um, Was this? Um did this get much buzz, even in sort of the indie circuit? Because I don't seem to recall I don't, much about I it. I don't think – no. Uh, I forget where I heard of this. I think it was on the group, actually. Yeah. Somebody had mentioned it. Uh, but that's that's all that I knew about it. Uh, this would be – if you like stuff like, again, like A Simple Plan or even, I believe I said before, Blue Ruin. Oh, yes. Uh, this is this is in that vein. Um, With Rockwell, though. I mean, he's such a great yeah. actor. He's bound to elevate material, even if it was average material. Oh, absolutely, and it's a slow burn watching how these things play out. Jason Isaacs, it's Jason Isaac, the the Australian British person, or is, is he, he Australian? He, I think he's British. Was he in um, maybe I'm in Event gonna... Horizon? Oh, okay. I'm actually thinking of um, there's an Australian actor. He was in um, Zero Dark Thirty. Maybe I'm, I'm thinking of someone else. He was also in, I think. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Jason, okay. Uh, yeah, but uh, he plays a nice little, uh, a real uh, piece of shit character. Uh, and this has like, well, I don't want to say about the ending because it would kind of ruin it, what I was going to compare it to. But, um, but yeah, no, this was good. I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody. Uh, absolutely. Went from there over to your your jam, Dogtooth from 2009. Yeah. And, yeah, man, this thing was uh, creepy shocking. and <laughs> shocking <laughs> and funny. Yeah, it's very absurdist. Uh, and it's really good. I mean, really good. Uh, I was shocked at how good I found it. I mean, I was expecting to like it because usually um, you and I tend to run in similar tastes. Yes. Uh, or at least, you know, well, yeah. yeah so, I, I can't uh, think of too many things that you've loved that I've hated or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a few. Well, His Girl Friday, but that's a whole other show. His Girl Friday. Oh, no, I quite like it. I do like it. I thought you didn't. No, I liked it. I just don't love it. Oh, okay. Well, I love See? it. See? That's okay. But that's okay. I do quite like it. It was charming. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Okay. Absolutely. I, I, mis- I mis- uh, misremembered that. Was, yeah. No, it's good. Um, for sure. But but this is this is really good. Uh, and, yeah, it, if you go – if you 
you could you could see an argument for people saying that it's pretentious. I didn't feel that it was pretentious. I think, I think no, it's... I think it's very earnest. I think it's very straightforward. I mean, you can kind of see how what plot there is is going to play out. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it, it plays it out almost no perfect. Uh, Sorry, go yeah, ahead. I totally no, go ahead. I was going to say, I think people sometimes try to frame things as pretentious. Just they automatically think that it's well, when they dislike is, it is art or artistic or art film, quote unquote, that immediately it needs to be branded as pretentious. And I, yeah. I think that's yeah. such an unfair and lazy criticism. Um, I think, you know, films like this are fascinating because, you know, and it's the kind of film that I really love nowadays. It's kind of transgressive art cinema. I, I still get excited for horror. I mean, I'm, in, I'm trying to watch as much horror as I can this month being in October. Um, but sometimes some of the sort of emotional and social horror that you see in these transgressive art films like uh, Noé and the Greek films from the sort of Greek new wave that we've seen and Lars von Trier, even though he, you know, he can be... A bit petulant at times, but I think when you get these um, European filmmakers um, that are doing a lot of this stuff, it's really, it's it's a joy to behold. And I think to look at Greece as well and to look at it as metaphor for what was happening in that country, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly no geopolitical expert, but you can't help when you hear headlines about the economy and the country and measures that have been taken, anti-austerity measures and just the, the tumult in the country and, and how that relates. But you don't need to. I mean, you can just watch it on the surface as kind of an absurdist, shocking, pitch black comedy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Uh, so I did want to say, too, one more thing that I mentioned last time is, and I know you probably remembered, but for our listeners, they would have never heard it. Uh, a Greek film I quite liked from a few years ago in the same vein, Miss Violence, which yes. is jet, jet, jet black. I don't know why they say jet black, because jets, this could be like a, such a... A stupid Jessica Simpson moment for me, but where did the term jet black come from? Jets tend to be more white or uh, metallic, so you can see them in the sky. Where did jet black come from? Do you know? Uh, I don't actually, although it could be uh, from. Um, it, well, I guess it's possible. It could be from like um, the jets that they have in the military that are black. Yeah, like maybe kind of stealthy, stealthy kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, maybe could that's be. it, but. <clears throat> It's very black, this film, um, Miss Violence. It's got a tremendous poster, so I want you to check it out. And uh, Yeah, no, I, I did. I put it on the, I put it on the Netflix queue. It's in there. Put them on the glass? <laughs> I, put it, I put it all on the glass. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, jumped over from that to uh, Todd Haynes' Carol. Uh, from I believe yeah, 2015, and it's this was outstanding as well. Uh, Kate Blanchett really, really, really brings it in this one. Um, Haynes kind of changes it up. This is a, I, I think of this as a companion piece, not necessarily in themes, but in uh, just the setting uh, and how it uh, how they dealt with uh, the sort of things going on. I don't want to say anything about the film itself, but uh, like the plot, but um, uh, how that time was kind of uh, very repressive and yes. what you had to do to, to, to be who you are, mm -hmm. uh, all that sort of thing is, is wrapped up in here. And it's done very well. Uh, it's gorgeous. Uh, it unlike unlike Far From Heaven, it's not you know that super saturated Serkian uh, kind of thing. This is uh, more drab, more realistic, more gritty, uh, but mm -hmm. still beautiful. Uh, and there are moments – uh, uh, that are really, really dreamlike, and he carries it off, you know, absolutely astoundingly. 
uh, as we were saying before, you know, to me, Rooney Mara is still kind of doing her Rooney Mara thing of being kind of, well, for me, icy and, you know, uh, but, but, uh, but she's, she's good in this. And like I said, like I said to you before, I, I think that this is probably, from what I've seen, uh, this is, in my opinion, her best uh, performance to date. I agree. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, this was really, really, really good. Uh, jumped over from that to a documentary, uh, Welcome to Leith, from 2015, which is uh, about a very, 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 very small town in North Dakota, I believe, um, where a uh, uh, neo-Nazi slash uber racist guy uh, moves in and and basically wants to uh, uh, have all of his pals come move in and take over the town, kind of make it their own. and this was really, really good and really, really unsettling in that it's it's all done above board. It's all done um, without having to, you know, hurt anybody or, you know, it's, nothing's underhanded. It's done by these guys as they're doing what they do. Uh, and it's how the, the town uh, townspeople react to that. Um, and that's the interesting thing, I think, is that – you know, you, you look at it and you're, you're outraged by by these people, and you're outraged by you know everything that they represent. But at the same time, you're like, but this is the rules. You know, this is this is how it is. Unfortunately, that they they can use the system in this manner. So it's kind of hard to put up an argument in that respect, even though you hate them. I mean, that's kind of for me. And this is kind of really going off on a tangent for it it's almost like free speech you know you don't you you don't like to hear some things or or agree with people who say them or like the people who say them but at the same time they have a right to say them um i mean obviously once it crosses a line then that's a different story but other than that uh yeah it's it's and that's what's really really scary is you know that if you want the if you want what America is, then unfortunately, this is one of the things that comes with it. Unless you want to start tramping down on things like that, and don't forget, don't get me wrong, I'm not defending these people by any no. stretch of the imagination. But um, so yeah, so that that's yeah, it was really unsettling, but a really really good documentary. I think really you just have to take the good, you have to take the bad, you, you take, take them both. both, and there yeah. you have. I want Joe. What the hell was her name? Polnicek on on this show. Yeah, she was. Uh, I, you know what? I, she I, was the tomboy. You know, it's funny because you, Rick, and I <clears throat> all love Joe as youngsters. But now that I've gotten older, I really like Blair. I don't know. I, I, like, I like Joe, too. but Well, I liked Blair back then, too. But, yeah, Joe was kind of – well, she was more earthy and she kind of – you know, she, she was, was in my uh, – um, what's the word? I'm looking, she was in my league, more or less. Yeah. Uh, as much as a league that I had, uh, went over from that to 2014's Banglehorn yeah. with uh, Al Pacino doing Al Pacino doing a really grumpy, uh, cynical man uh, who's full of regret about uh, a woman that he loves and can't let go of, and how he's um, kind of forced into realizing that you know. We got to kind of move on, and there are some truly awkward moments in this thing, uh, with him interacting with people and how he just 
always he's so obsessed with this woman that he just the entire rest of humanity just almost doesn't exist to him uh and there's kind of an about schmidt angle to it in the uh, the letters that he's constantly writing to this person uh in the same way that uh, schmidt was um writing letters to that kid that that he was like a pen pal with in some country i think it might have been africa i'm not 100 percent remembering that oh, one yeah, but... i remember that because he's writing as um about his wife and yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. uh so uh, there's that angle to it but this was really good uh again and this was a high recommend from sammy if i'm not mistaken it might have been top 30 for him I believe it was, and I've been meaning to see. I want to say it's on instant. Um, I think weren't you guys discussing it whilst mangling your horns? <laughs> Might have been. Uh, I could do a lot. I could, so I could do a lot of damage. <laughs> um, went from that to uh, Takashi Miike's Yakuza Apocalypse from 2015, and. From what I was told about this, it was kind of done spur of the moment because he was supposed to be doing a film with Tom Hardy and that fell through. So they basically kind of made this movie up on the spot. And it's um, – you could tell that it was made up on the spot because there's a lot of just stuff that's thrown into it. Uh, and it, it works by and large. It works well enough uh, in that you know, Mike is able to go for – complete absurdity uh but he still makes it uh, he still has the talent to to pull it off it, it still looks good it still moves along um i mean if you're expecting something like 13 assassins out of this forget it because uh, this ain't that um but it's worth a view uh i don't i would i would certainly not put this in in the tops of his uh, filmography by any stretch uh but uh yeah it was good i'm, I'm glad i watched it so uh you could say that I went from there to oh I finally well didn't finally I rewatched uh, Ghidorah the three headed monster from 1964 uh, from of course Toho Studios this is the fifth I want to say Godzilla film uh, fourth or fifth I can't remember offhand um, but this one has always been good not great for me mm-hmm. because I always felt that the uh, the people story uh, kind of weighed it down a bit more than you get in some of the other films, even though the, the people, people, and I keep saying people story because I mean, come on. With, with these, with the Godzilla movies, you have the people story, you have the monster story, and, and when you were a kid, you couldn't wait to get to the, uh, the monsters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, like I was saying to you before, I, I think that this was the last of the quote unquote serious Godzilla films. Uh, this was kind of the tipping point when you have the little monster council deciding whether or not they want to, uh, fight Ghidorah or just, you know, go on their merry way. Um, but it, it's good. I mean, like I said, I, I love all the Godzilla movies, uh, just in, in different degrees. And this is a little bit lower for me, but it's still, you know, still high. Um, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, do you get to see that oversized gavel at the Monster Council? <laughs> <laughs> no. I don't really – well, yeah, Godzilla does get shot in the uh, in the genital area with a little electricity, so. <laughs> Man, shit gets real at the council meetings. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's – yeah, there's some dissidents. Um, went from that, I rewatched uh, the – well, I kind of rewatched. It's the director's cut of Nightbreed. Um I finally caught this one, and uh, I liked it. Uh, I liked it a good bit, actually. I, I, Nightbreed has always been kind of problematic for me. It never quite 
it's got great ideas uh it you know some great great uh makeup effects and uh you know Cronenberg being ultra creepy but it, it just never a hundred percent worked for me uh as a matter of fact i like hellraiser and lord of illusions uh as far as clive barker's directorial work more than this one um it's still good uh but i think that it, it could very well be that because of how ambitious it was it kind of uh crumbled a little bit under the weight of it yes um but it's still it's still good, and plus Anne Bobby, uh, the uh, the love interest in this, has just never I've never found the woman interesting at all. That's a uh, that's, a, that's a personal thing for me, but um, but other than that, uh, yeah, no, this was this was good. I was glad to finally be able to see what you know he he was trying to actually put on screen. So you know, thank God that they they were able to uh, find the uh, the materials and yeah, reassemble the film. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not the same thing as as Metropolis, the the restoration yeah. of Metropolis, obviously, but uh, but it, you know it's good, it's good, and it's good to see it uh, it finally seen the light of day. So, uh, and then finally, I um, caught up with another Billy Wilder film, which is 1960s The Apartment, uh, with Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray, uh, Ray Walston, a great cast, and this was really really good. Uh, it's about uh, Jack Lemmon's this guy who works in an office, and all of the executives above him uh, basically use his pad as a, a little uh, fuck pad for ATM, when they want to get away from their wives. Yeah, there you go. I don't know what ATM means, but yes, uh, I know uh, ATM to me is automatic teller machine. So, oh, it's automatic. ATMs. I only know what DTF is. Said, man. No way to control it. <laughs> nice. But this was really good. It's got uh, a lot of the Billy Wilder wit. Uh, his neighbor, I can't remember who plays his neighbor. This little. Um, this little doctor guy uh, is really great in it. Uh, Lemon does his lemon thing. Um, Shirley MacLaine is super fucking adorable in it. And the thing about this film is that it's um, – oh, and I should mention Fred McMurray plays, plays a real, real piece of shit in this one. So if you're used to him from My Three Sons, you're going to get a different dose of him. Um, not quite along the lines of uh, Double Indemnity, actually a little bit lower on the, the human food chain. But um, there is – a what was I saying about oh McLean uh, super adorable in this but she also there's a, a very very dark line going uh, underneath this film and she's really she's adorable and she's you know a great character but she's also very very fragile uh, and as well I don't want to say any more than that so uh, yeah I, I highly highly recommend this as I recommend all Billy Wilder films I haven't seen a bad one from the guy ever so. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's it for me. Kick it over to you, sir. All right. Um, I haven't seen a ton of Wilder. I've seen maybe a little bit less than a handful. Okay, um, I got to see more. Definitely a, a director <laughs> worth uh, worth checking out. Worth putting your time in with. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I won't make the same mistake I did in the Lost recording that I said. Did I talk about the Peanuts movie? Yes, uh, and I did talk about the Peanuts movie, uh, which is a great uh, reinvention of a wonderful, well-loved uh, franchise or entity. Um, I watched Leon Klimovsky's "The People Who Own the Dark." I, I, the title alone really grabbed me. Uh, yeah. I thought, wow, what a great title! It's kind of like Omega Man with dashes of Eyes Wide Shut or Sallow. Um, 
I don't want to oversell it. I mean, it's not. Klimovsky's a very good, competent kind of genre director, but I mean, he's not um, Pasolini or Kubrick no. or anything. But um, no, but I've, I always <clears throat> thought that he and Nashi worked best together. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than when Nashi was directing himself. I think you never. A lot of times with Klimovsky films, you don't feel the budget as much as you do with kind of hacky some of the hacky directors that Nashi worked with. Yeah. Yeah. They feel more elegant. But this one, basically, a bunch of rich people are engaged in an orgy and uh, just indulging in all sorts of sexual pleasures uh, underground in this castle. The bomb drops, and everyone above ground goes blind. And it's just about, um, well, about uh, how they cope, how they deal with it. Uh, in Little Bit of Night of the Living Dead as well, certainly. Um, Nashi's kind of a, you know, he's kind of the... I don't. He's not not the bad guy. There really isn't. Well, I guess humanity is the bad guy in this <laughs> one, but uh, or lack of humanity. But he's kind of the like the the father in Night of the Living Dead, but not as much of a shit heel. Yeah, yeah. I think he's more. You know, what? I think he's more of a mercenary type. Would be an accurate description. Okay. How how many times how many times did they use the word propitious in this? Uh, that's a question I have no way of knowing the answer. Because they they I noticed that I noticed watching uh, a lot of his. Uh, his movies, and this may only be in the English dubs, although I don't think so. But they really tend to, they really like using the word propitious. It's I don't know why. I yeah, don't know why. I don't know, but it's funny you said that because sometimes when I'm watching um, certain films that are dubbed, or not dubbed, uh, subtitled, I'll see a word come up and I'm thinking, well, that's a very elegant word for this kind of film. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like you said, like I've, I've literally, to the best of my knowledge, Never heard propitious in English language film. Yeah, like uh, Nash, he'll be stripping down to his bare torso and be saying like, oh, the time is now propitious. Oh yeah. Well, when you're Nashy, every uh, every evening's propitious. The guy <laughs> dude takes his shirt off and makes that with gorgeous Spanish women. So yeah, wow. Well, uh, you know, I envy that. Yeah. How could you, you not? Well, hey, he's got to wear shades. Future was so bright, man. <laughs> for, yeah, I mean, for a Belushi lookalike to get that much uh, Euro trim is very impressive. Indeed. Speaking of Euro trim of the highest order, and not to be crass, uh, <clears throat> I wanted to watch something kind of breezy, fun, sexy, so I put on a pair of lacy women's underwear, and uh, I watched A Fine Pair with Rock Hudson and Claudia Caronal. Uh, I'm kidding about the underwear. It's not my thing. If it's someone's thing, then, well, I'm sure it's lots of people's thing. I'm sure. Yeah, but you could fit a fine pair in those. Yeah, you could fit a fine pair. The feel of satin against the... The plums would, well, maybe not plums, but uh, <laughs> not far removed, I guess. Um, not that I have oversized testicles. i got to drop this thing and just talk about the film. Uh, I think I these huge, like, clackers. Uh, <laughs> the kerbangers. Uh, the kerbangers, yeah. It's like, listen, I'm, I'm uh, you know, the Frank's good. The beans are fine, you know. Um, anyway, a fine pair. Uh, with these two breezy, sexy, 60s kind of caper comedy film. Lots of globe trotting. In the right hands, this could have been like an all-time kind of great film in this genre, but it's in sort of very average workman-like hands. Um, Thomas Millian shows up, but he's dubbed, so that takes some of the joy out of it. But uh, it's who, great. Who, I'm, I'm sorry, who was the director on this? Do you know uh, offhand? Italian director, it was Francesco Maselli. Okay. So... Uh, this and this is saying something. He worked a lot in Italy. I, I don't know off the top of my head of too many things he's done. Uh, no, this might be, and this is high praise, the best Claudia Cardinale's ever looked. Mm. And it might, it might be for me my favorite performance of hers, only from the standpoint of she gets to have fun. 
Yeah. A lot of times in films, she has to emote and we need to feel sort of the pangs of sadness at this beautiful angel who's in tears or she kind of gets to do like that Sophia Loren 60s Italian sex comedy thing. Okay. She's sassy. She's charming. She's quirky. Gorgeous. Uh, As I was telling you, there's an incredible scene when it's one of those really cockamamie things where it's a heist, but the temperature has to be, I think it was like almost 200 Fahrenheit or the alarms will go off. So Uh, they get in the room and the clothes start coming off. She's down to like garter belt lingerie and she's on the floor and she's, you know, she's wobbling and she lays on the floor and then he finds like these cold seltzer bottles in the fridge and he's spraying her with them and she's writhing around on the floor and it's pretty glorious. It's uh wow. What a scene. Um, but it's a fun film. I'm a huge fan of Hudson. I think he's one of the most overlooked ac- actors of his time. I, need, I mean, I know a lot of people give him credit as being a f- movie star, but mm-hmm. when you look at his filmography, um, there's got to be at least 10 to 15, at least, at least 10 to 15 films that are just excellent. And he puts in wonderful performances. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's one of my favorite actors of the era. I'll say, you know, he, he was really diverse. Um, it's a shame he died. Yeah, he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid to take chances. I mean, look at seconds. Second, I mean, he works with everyone from Frankenheimer to Cirque. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, on and on. Um, next up was Elevator to the Gallows. Louis Mao, who this year has become easily one of my favorite filmmakers. I'd only seen a couple, maybe three films of his before this year. I've been getting into a lot of his documentaries, which he's wonderful with. But this one, proper kind of pulpy French crime noiry um, film. Uh, lots of twists of fate. Really great stuff. Simone Signore. No, Simone Signore. Wrong French actress. Jean Moreau is just radiant in it. Um, she has a lot of kind of... Um, we get a lot of voiceover kind of monologues from her as she's wandering the streets of Paris. The city, to me, it looks as good as it's ever looked. Uh, yeah. Excellent Miles Davis score. I mean, th- this is an all-timer. I mean... I think Liam was like 24, 25 when he made it. Just blows my mind. It'll be at my top 30 first time watches. So great stuff. And I'm finally yeah. glad I got that one off my list. Yeah, no, that is very good. Uh, next up, Who Took Johnny? <clears throat> very sad documentary um, about Johnny Gosh, who was a newspaper boy who went missing in the early 80s, in 82, 83. And his family, specifically his mother's quest, a never-ending quest to find her son and to get answers. And it's one of those documentaries where you, you just get angry and heartbroken at the kind of bumbling and, and the lack of urgency uh, with some of the agencies involved. And I just, I can't even imagine. I mean, it's, it's the worst horror I think a, a parent can have. And I mean, Johnny was the first child on the side of a milk carton. He was on America's yeah. Most Wanted. Um, there's a moment in this, as I'd said to you, and as I've talked about when I talk about this, that one of the most sort of, um, I guess the only way I can describe it is, as far as a physical feeling was, it was like someone just put a vacuum in my mouth and sucked all the air out of my lungs. Yeah. It was just yeah. a stunning moment. Um, then we watched, as a family at the theater, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. This is uh, middle-of-the-road Burton, but... It's still Burton. Uh, I, for me, I don't feel the same way about his more recent work as some people do. Some people have really fallen out of love with him. I think sometimes, you know, we get fatigued on filmmakers and their aesthetics and their fixation. But Burton's stuff always works for me because I I think there's a heart in most of his work. 
Yeah. Well, I think I think it, it kind of it, this kind of relates to what I was saying about Spielberg and, and the way that modern films are. I think it's more a, a sameness of of look. Uh, and as these guys get older, you know, they kind of it's kind of like with the with artists when you see, you know, they might have drawn every single line of something way back when, but now you see them and they get a little looser, a little sketchier. Um, so you know, obviously they're going to evolve, but um, I think that it, I, I tend to think that it's more along the lines of just the that kind of sameness of of films in general, sure. uh, than it is about uh, the actual. The filmmakers, although for me, yeah, Burton's gone a bit downhill for me. Oh, I still like him. I'm still interested. I'm still interested in what he does. I still li- I like Dark Shadows. I'll be honest. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I, I probably got to watch it. it now. I liked it. It wasn't horrible. I mean, it, it's not great, but it, you know, it didn't suck. Um, so, you know, I still like him. I'm still willing to to check out some of his stuff. Uh, Big Eyes was a, a pretty big disappointment to me, was but it I still was still it's still it's still good. Uh, but it was, you know, it was not what I was hoping for. I was hoping for something along the, the lines of a return to Ed Wood-ishness mm, right. f- from him, and I just didn't get it there. So maybe it was um, expectations meeting reality on that one. Sure, sure. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I, I get where you're coming from with that. And I think, you know, the kids are great in this. All the kids, um, I've heard from people, I know Lisa, one of our friends, um was disappointed, but she read the book first. I've never read the book, so I can't really compare or mention how it, or you know, discuss or analyze how it would pale in comparison. The cast is fun, uh, as I'd said to you. I'm not a huge fan of Eva Green, but she has a lot of fun in this. Sam Jackson is wonderful as the heavy, as always, um, and it looks great. I mean, it, it almost feels like I think at Burton's finest moments, he kind of sprinkles us with that that pixie dust that only really great filmmakers who. Only really great filmmakers you can do, but filmmakers that really have a tie to sentimentality and youth and mm-hmm. how they can express that on screen, um, I think really sure. can grab you sometimes, uh, whether it's Spielberg or whether it's... Or, or even a sense, a sense of wonder. A sense right? of wonder, precisely. And I don't think that it's, it's um, shimmering with a sense of wonder, but there are moments that it works quite well. It just it feels like a very... It feels like... Burton-esque, but almost like a studio director who made a, a carefully constructed Burton Xerox. Right, right. But I don't mean, I don't mean that disparagingly. It's fine. I liked it quite a bit. You know, 7, 7.25, maybe 7.5. You know, there's some fun stuff in it. And some nice a nice nod to Ray Harryhausen with some really? skeletons, so I'll say nice. no more. Um, next up, William was up late, as he tends to be on Friday nights with me, and he won- I was like, you know, I'm going to drop some cannon on him. Time he gets into the Dudikov zone, so we put on American Ninja, and uh, he loved it. It was great. It's it's got a good, it's got a kind of a an innocent heart about it compared to some yeah. of the really sleazy, scuzzy. I, I'm not showing him Death Wish two or three, you know. Well, canon. Not yet. That's no. next year. No, exactly next year. Um, but this was good. It was fun. He gets this, you know, we introduced to Steve James and Dudikov, oh, yeah. and now he wants to watch all five of them or six of them, and we got them. So. I think the limit I'm missing on VHS is three, which is a heartbreak. But um, I, I still have it in digital form. But, uh, yeah, it was fun. Uh, and the, the female lead in it, as I said to you, I've always had a crush on. She was in oh, yeah. science. Um, goodness, uh, Judy Aronson. So she's cute. Um, we did It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, to kick off October. Nice. I'm a huge Peanuts guy, as I've said many times. This is short, sweet, to the point. I got the Blu-ray. It looks good. Uh, there's a, a second, um, I don't want to say feature, because it's not a feature, but a second uh, 
film or short on it. It's a magic one. I want to say it's where Snoopy does magic. I saw it last year, I think. Um, but yeah, there's a classic. It's funny, though, to watch the Charlie Brown stuff and look at how Charlie doesn't win and how kids yeah. do get teased and there isn't this moral comeuppance uh, that you see nowadays all the time. So it's And Lucy doesn't get punished for being an awful cunt. <laughs> and I love yeah. Lucy, as I've often said. She and, and I, I find it hard to explain to my kids how I love this nasty woman, this nasty little girl. But and you know, I like I've often said, I have a pewter Lucy on my desk. I'm looking at right now. So, but it's funny. Um, some of the stuff with kids' films then they didn't always win. Well, no, they. I mean, they, they were a little more realistic in that regard, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't have to play to a. Um, it's funny because, you know, back in the in the 30s with the code and all that stuff, they would have that thing where like you know crime must always be punished, blah 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 blah. Yeah. And then you know as as, uh, mm. as these things evolved and it got a little more realistic, where it was like, well, you know, not all not all the time does the the good guy get the girl, not all the time does the good guy win the prize. So, mm-hmm. and in this, and I like that pumpkin. sort of thing. Yeah, the great pumpkin never comes. Exactly. You you'd think at the end, at the final moment, when does a wonderful. You know, it does a wonderful job of, of teaching you something without pandering or without um, moralizing or without you know any of that sort of thing. Right. It's you know it's just a very straightforward. This is the way it is. You know sometimes you have to deal with it, but it, it, you know Schultz and I don't know what involved what level of involvement he had with the the cartoons offhand. Um, you know he had he had a great way of doing that because you know Charlie Brown was always a sad sack from day one so mm-hmm. uh, he was just kind of the guy you rooted for but you're like oh and then he you know she fucking pulls that football away and you want to punch her teeth out of her head and then she'll charge you five cents for the psychiatric help she gives you later that's right that's right good old Lucy but yeah it's funny uh, it's funny to see that um, finally we watched Spirited Away um, mm. as I told you we are in the Heavy into the um, the Ghibli catalog, or, or, or we're deeply in love with it to the point where, and this, if you've never seen a Ghibli film, has become a discussion among the boys and I and my wife. Um, is Ghibli better than Disney? And I'm not prepared to say that it is yet, but I think the fact that we're even having that conversation is testament to the quality of these films. Yeah, Spirited Away might be my favorite of the th- four we've seen so far. We've seen Porco Rosso, uh, My Neighbor Totoro. Kiki's Livery Service, and now this, uh, Spirited Away. Beautiful films, as I've often said to you. I love how relaxed their pace is. Um, self-discovery. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of a gentle calmness to the films I really love. Um, the beauty of the sort of imagination of the studio really astounds me. Things just... The poetry, the beauty and the poetry of these, and just the imagination, God, it, it really it inspires me. It, it, it makes me feel, it really, it, it makes me feel good as, a, as an adult to watch them. Um, so I can't yeah. even imagine as a child to, to see some of these creatures and really wonderful stuff. Really wonderful. Um, and that's it. Uh, why don't we take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about these films in chronological order. So first up, uh, as I'd said the last time, but it was a good, <laughs> a good joke, so I'm going to stick with it. We're going to go put on our high heels and come back and talk <laughs> about Death Walks on High. Put it on the glass. We're going to put them on the glass. We will be right back. <laughs> We'll be right back. 
Jolly. Death walks on high heels. Um, as we had mentioned in the opening of the show, this was and is an episode that's been brought to you and brought to us, of course, by Arrow Video. Uh, Arrow was kind enough to sponsor the show. Uh, sorry, I'm checking to make sure this is recording. <laughs> um, and uh, this great set. Uh, I want to talk about this set because we tend to, I find, get excited to talk about the films and not get into some of the features. So this is, as always, it's limited to 3,000 copies. Uh, brand new 2000, 2000, 2K restoration, well, I guess 2000, rest- but that doesn't make sense. 2K restorations of the film from the original camera negatives, uh, which is great. That's no small feat because a lot of times... In other countries, you know, Hong Kong, Italy and stuff, shit uh, gets tossed in the can. Um, 1080p, you get both English and Italian soundtracks. I watched both in Italian. Uh, How did you watch them? Um, I watched them both in Italian, yeah. I find, I don't know. I just, I feel like, even though I know a lot of the times um, they can be done in English, I just feel like you get the original actor's voice, and even if there's a slight disconnect, it... It just feels more real to me. It, it does. I think it depends largely on. I mean, if it, yeah, it, given the choice on a first time watch, if I have the option to watch it in the original language with subtitles, I'll do that. Absolutely. Uh, if it's something like uh, like Five Deadly Venoms, which you know I saw a million times on television in the English dub, then I only want to watch it in that English dub. Yeah, comfort, right? Um, exactly. Well, it's, yeah, it's what you're used to. It's you know, it's kind of what makes you go back to it in the first place. Well, part of it. Um, but yeah, uh, I would prefer it uh, in the original language myself. The only thing is, I noticed that whenever I'm oh, I'm doing something for a review, uh, and it's in the original language with subtitles, I'm constantly pausing because I have to keep looking up to make sure that I'm not missing anything. Well, that's why uh, my book's chicken scratch because I'm furiously writing so I don't yeah. miss anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one benefit to having it in English is you can have your eyes down and look at the page and stuff. Exactly. <laughs> so down it's it's a temptation, but I, I try to avoid it. Yes, exactly. Uh, great, beautiful 60-page booklet. It's got uh, a piece from Danny Shipka, Troy Howarth, um, Leonard Jacobs, and then, as always, the cover art's fantastic. Now, I'm a sucker for the original cover art uh, with films in most cases, um, so I've flipped them over, but... They look great. The, the great. Speaking of great, Tim Lucas gives a nice commentary, which we live in such a golden age. To have these films with a commentary by an expert in the field, really wonderful. Because as we've often talked about, as people who really love film, it's almost like mini film school. You know, mm-hmm. you, I mean, it'd be obviously, you know, because of the age and the language barriers and stuff, it would have been no disrespect to Mr. Lucas, but... It would have been wonderful to have, you know, Nieves Navarro and Ercole and Andrew and Frank, well, rest in peace, Frank Wolf, talk about this film and some of the behind the scenes stories. But um, Lucas is an authority, you know, a brilliant mind in the world of film commentary, film critic. Um, so it's nice to have just a commentary track where he can share some anecdotes. Uh, introduction by Ernesto Gastaldi, an interview with Gastaldi, mm-hmm. uh, as well as interviews with Ercole and Nieves Navarro. Uh, there's actually I didn't I didn't even realize this. There was an interview with uh, Cipriani, which I got to go back and watch. So, and I'll say this about the the Castaldi interview. I only got to watch a few uh, few minutes of it, but um, he mentions that he wrote a book called Giallo for Dummies, and I would love 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 to get a translated copy of that. That would be amazing. I wonder if you buy it through like Google or something, because my wife does a lot of reading. She does. She's on this thing now. I, I don't know if it's a recent fad, but. 
she signed up for this app where Google just sends her sometimes like one question or sometimes like five minute surveys mm-hmm. and she gets money. They pay her like, it's like not much, like 20 cents or whatever, but it goes in like a Google account and then she uses it to buy digital books or eBooks. Okay. So I wonder if and maybe some people that read more on devices could tell us, but I wonder if there's books that are translated if there's a function that will translate them, but then again, you run into the risk of like that babblefish. Well, yeah, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be almost like a like a Hong Kong uh, yeah, ultra literal subtitles. Yeah, amazing. Um, do you want? I, I can't remember. I think you led on this one last time. Do you want to? Lead I led on this one. You can lead on this one this cool. time. So we'll switch it up. We're yeah, gonna we're gonna switch it up like on. Switch it up. Hit it from the back. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this film has a great pedigree. It's uh, you know. A lot of times, you know, we'll hang on and we'll get a director and one star, right? And then that's kind of enough for us to kind of carry us through the film. But mm-hmm. with this, I think we one of the strengths of this is uniformly we get quality involvement. We get Ercole, who Sally wasn't as prolific as a lot of his contemporaries, but frankly should have been, because he's a very good filmmaker. Ernesto Gastaldi, one of the best writers in the business. Mm. We get Frank Wolf, who, as we both said, uh, a wonderful screen presence, a very good actor. Uh, Nieves Navarro, who was, of course, married to Riccoli, and which is interesting to sort of look at the the psychology and some of what was going on on screen with her, um, based on knowing that. Simone Andrew, who, of course, also had worked with uh, Riccoli prior with in photos, um, and then, uh, as we had said, uh, Cipriani does the score. Uh, it was shot by, and I want to mention this because this film's beautifully shot. Uh, where is it? Alison? No, that was the second unit. Now I can't find it. Oh, uh, Fernando Arribas, who was, as we said, a Spanish um, DOP, and this was a co-production because Navarro was, of course, Spanish. Yes. Um, yeah, because we talked about how he had some great, uh, some. I think we, had, we said he had some great films in his, uh, some great titles of films. He has a film called Pim, Pam, Poom, Fire. <laughs> That's amazing. That's got to be a Western, right? Let's see. Oh, no, it looks like a kind of weird colonial sex comedy or something. With Conta yeah. Velasco, who's a Spanish actress. Anyway, we're short on time, so I don't, I, as much as I want to go down the rabbit hole, I don't think we have the time. Um, great. Uh, I think, and I, in case I forget to say this later, I think these this box set would make a great introduction to the wonderful world of, of Jali. Uh, yeah, absolutely. One of them's a little more bonkers. One of them's a little more procedural, um, which kind of gives you the two sides of the Jalo coin. Um, so I think this is, makes a good introduction to the genre. Um, this one, and I, we haven't even synopsized this. Man, I'm coming up strong. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's let me synopsize it here. Unless, uh, do you have the synopsis in front of you? Uh, I have. Uh, well, I have the summary from INDB. That's cool. Uh, okay, I'll read that off. Uh, a famed jewel thief named Rochard is slashed to death on a train. His daughter, Nicole Novaro, uh, a famous nightclub performer in Paris at Crazy Horse, might I add, uh, is questioned by the police about some missing diamonds, but she claims to know nothing about this. Nicole is then terrorized by a masked man with piercing blue eyes who demands to know where her father has hidden the stolen diamonds. 
Suspecting that her jealous boyfriend, Michelle, may be the man who is harassing her, uh, Nicole and her newfound friend, Dr. Robert Matthews, escaped to England. Uh, Robert Matthews, Frank Wolf, um, escaped to England and apparent safety, but the killer will strike again. Yes, he will. He talks. Yeah. <laughs> I milked this one last time. I will do it again. I love it. I love it. Um, so, yeah. So, there you go. Uh, interestingly, this... Uh, it looks at a few different things outside of, and, and this is early in the genre too, relatively. I mean, you had the Baba stuff, and mm-hmm. I can't remember what year uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage came out. It's got to be around 70, 71. Uh, sounds right, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's pretty close to there anyway. So this is an early entry in the genre. But you see sort of the sensationalism of news because, um, uh, no. Oh, I'm looking at my midnight notes. Ooh, I got to switch it up. I was like, that doesn't sound right at all. Um, I love the, uh, oh, this film opens in very GGTMC fashion, uh, a man in an eye patch, a peacoat with a fur-lined briefcase is murdered on a train, very GGTMC. Um, it takes place in London, it takes place in the English countryside, but most interestingly for me, it takes place in Paris for the first half of the film. And as I'd said to you, I can't recall another giallo that does take place in Paris because we had Germany got featured a fair bit. I think even Solange takes place in Germany, doesn't it? I want to say that was England, yeah. Yeah, but there's a couple that take place in Germany um, and England seem to be the two European countries, and Spain a little bit maybe, but I don't recall seeing one in Paris because they make sure to get the shot of the Eiffel Tower, right? Yeah, well, I think and the Arc de Triomphe. And the Arc de Triomphe, that's right. Um, So it's cool to see France featured in a giallo. Yes. Um, I love the opening theme for this. It's very sexy, very kind of breathy. Nora Orlandi did the uh, provided the vocal work for the the music, and she's kind of, you know, for those that want to compare some kind of an Etta Del Orso type, um, very breathy, sexy. And I think that, as I'd said to you the first time uh, when we talked about it and I got lost, this feels like a transition for me when Italy was really successful with the sort of breezy, funny. Uh, sex comedies of the 60s so that you still have elements of that in this film even with the score the score feels almost late 60s kind of to me oh very much so very much sensibility yeah um scott's great in this i feel like as we've all and they even point this out i think in one of the the features on the disc is a lot of times like with your girl mimsy farmer um (laughs) a lot of and and my girl florinda balkan uh and Balkan could do steely, but a lot of times you would get sort of these women that were just frayed nerves and hysteria. Yeah, yeah. Navarro, despite having some pretty intense stuff done to her, keeps her composure, keeps her wits about her, and I think she she's a really great leading lady in the genre. Well, she's very – and especially here, uh, she's very much in charge both in her relationship um, – with Michelle and in just the way that she comports herself generally, like I was saying before, when they're in the commissar's uh, office initially, she, she, the way she's lounging in the chair with her legs up and kind of spread a little bit, you're just, you know, she's extremely seductive. She knows exactly what she's doing, you know, at all times. She's aware of her body and she's not afraid to, to use it. And she is absolutely 100% in, 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 in control up to a point. Well, uh, not necessarily in terms of the plot, obviously, but but she's uh, very much a, a woman who's uh, used to being um, 
I don't want to say forceful, but uh, assured of herself. She's right. you know knows what she wants, and this is what it is, and that's what it is. No, exactly. And I like that. Yeah, it's nice to see uh, somebody who's not just a, a you know a screaming Mimi or a screaming Mimsy. Screaming, I was going to say a, scre- a screaming Mimsy. There you go. Nice. Um, yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. She's in control. Um, so she works at the Crazy Horse and yes. Sign of the Times. Uh, she's the sexy sister of C. Thomas Howell. She has <laughs> unfortunate blackface and a wig. Yes. And uh, it, it, But like we were like we were saying, that's it's not malicious. No, it's one of those no. things where as long as you look at it in the frame of when it was and that's not you know it's not being done to belittle anybody or any, no. you know, race or anything like that. No. And plus the the one of the good things that this gives us is that it gives us a nice little uh, moment where Michelle comes in and helps her take the makeup off a little bit there. In the in the breast area, yeah, he does. Um, and yeah, it's and and Frank Wolf, such a such a highline pro, as our <laughs> would say. Dude brings his own camera and starts recording the material. He he wants yes. to, you know, have a vault of uh, stroke material for later. So I guess that wasn't frowned upon in in the Crazy Horse, but nowadays Wait. you try to pull out a camera at a ripper joint. Oh, buddy. Good luck with that. You will be escorted to the door. Yeah, you'll get bopped, Bud Spencer style, man. <laughs> Can't do that. Um, but yeah, Wolf loves it. Uh, I got to say, her strip was pretty sexy too. Like again, I don't know. It just it, it was very sexy. It felt believable. A lot of times when uh, actresses do a strip tease on camera, it feels very half-assed forgive the yeah well, well mechanical very mechanical and rigid but she's sent there's a sensuality about navarro mm-hmm. um so then this dude with with the voice box uh breaks into her apartment and or no he doesn't this at this point he's called there's some threatening calls and yes you know he's threatening her saying where are the dime where are the diamonds where are the diamonds where are the diamonds i you know and and uh, because her dad was this this jewel thief and uh, she doesn't know. And I, I really like this element of kind of, and you see this a lot in, in noir and crime films, but how almost like it's this own separate world where you can't really go to the cops for certain things. And this, everything, you have to kind of fend for yourself in this kind of underground. Um, but anyway, eventually this guy breaks into her apartment. She's alone. And one of the more, and this feels very Argento to me because he, he did this wonderfully. She gets this kind of chiffon shirt or scarf tied over her head, almost like as if you would put like a plastic bag over someone's head. Mm-hmm. And he takes out this straight razor and he runs the dull side up and down her body. And he's saying, you know, he's alluding to the fact that she makes money off her beauty and her body. And he says, the next time I come, I'm going to use the sharp side. And it's a really great scene because there's something about her face being covered like that that adds to the vulnerability and intensity of the scene. Yes, it's extremely intense, yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Um, we get a... So she decides she's going to bounce, and she goes to London with uh, with Dr. Robert Matthews, Frank Wolf, And uh, we get a kind of a, a cute kind of London date montage. Yes, yeah. Yeah, the little thing where she's, she's kind of trying on fashions, and he's being his little passively creepy, polite guy self. Very ingratiating. Yeah, sure. Uh, and he's got, I got to say, Frank Wolf has strong, strong trench coat game. He looks good in a trench coat. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. Really nice and crisp. He rocks it. Henry Silver better watch out. Yeah, um, buddy. And I like, but I, I got to say, I like Wolf. Wolf, again, I think elevates the material. Like, you know, he talks about being um, 
separated from his wife and just kind of and just in life in general i think he he she says scott says to him, you never ask me about things you're not nosy and he says well every question begged a reply and every reply belied disappointment i really like that line mm-hmm. i don't know i just thought he was good and i think that it is relatively well written because he's very uncurious or not a curious person at all he isn't george um lots of uh dark alleys and corridors which are used to great effect i think as metaphor of people kind of going down the wrong path and, and blind alleyways and so forth, but also in a literal or a cinematic sense, it looks good. Mm-hmm. Um, Ercole must have been a man who had a, a hair or a wig fetish, because in both films... Oh, my God. ...puts her in all sorts of wigs. and he, I don't think he does her any favors, because she wears, like, a Rastafarian hat at one point. <laughs> she wears, um, like, these metal, almost like... like Curlers. Curlers in her hair. Yeah. It's something you would expect Donna Summer to wear. Yeah, yeah. Or who's who's the lady? Who's the lady who uh, who did the cover on Knock on Wood back in the? Fuck. Ah, uh, damn it! Because I remember seeing her on like Solid Gold or something like that, and she had those things on more uh, or less. I can't, I can't. Fuck! I can't think of it. Um, Luciano Rossi, uh, one of the <laughs> yeah. great kind of skeevy henchmen in films. Um, he shows up. And as we had said, he's all Dr. Claw. He <laughs> loves stroking the cat. And uh, this guy, more than Luciano Caranacci, or who was the other actor I had said? Um, oh, um, fuck, it's in my other... I did the same thing last time we recorded. I, I couldn't remember the two actors that always seem to play heavies in films. I can remember Caranacci, and I remember the other guy the other time. But anyway... You get these actors that um, tend to play heavies, and sometimes they get a nice guy role. But Rossi was always just this creepy, skeevy guy. And he's kind of like, and as I had said too, I thought he was kind of like a, a skeevy or kind of Paul Coslow type. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I believe I compared him to uh, Kinski. He's very yes, Kinski yes, yes. In, in both of these movies. He's like a slight Kinski. He's not as much mm-hmm. of a force of nature, but he's like a slight. Yeah. He doesn't bring the depravity quite as much as, uh, as Kinski does. No. He's more fragile than Kinski, I feel. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, and it's... it's uh, Well, okay, yeah, keep going. Hallery is a chronic masturbator. <laughs> character. Not yeah. real, but... Hey. Um, I like how they kind of balance... Now that this one so much isn't about questioning how reliable our narrator is, but the voice box man comes back and he's calling her and he, you know, he's got the balaclava on and all this and... Um, Anyway, fuck, see, Sammy's not going to hear the whistle anymore. That's like the new whistle. <laughs> I'm not able to make the Wanderers joke anymore. I had to change that. Lost my train of thought. Okay, um, lots of voyeurism, and mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that really works well for me with this film is there's a, a lot of earned, solid red herrings in this film. Yeah, yeah, I know there are. It's it's one of those uh, it's one of those scripts. Um, one of those stories that where you know it actually makes sense. Yeah, like sure. and again and again both of them, both of these films, you know it makes sense. You know it's uh, absolutely not. It's not one of those things where you, they're just throwing spaghetti at the wall. Yeah. And uh, picking off the pieces that stick. No, this I think Gastaldi because I think a lot of times you almost feel like every day they were writing that day's <laughs> portion of the script with some jolly, but with this I feel like everything was constructed bearing in mind what the end result was and they could work mm-hmm. through it and it feels uh, mechanically sound um, yeah. 
like I said, a lot of the red herrings are, are, are legitimate and they're earned and I really like them. I think they work well. Um, because I don't think that... Um, I mean, there's some that are obvious, but I think they still work as being obvious ones. Um, but, uh, yeah, editing is part of a great giallo as well, and I think this is edited well. You know, you get those shots after something happens that they're trying to cast doubt on someone, and it, it, it works quite well. And I think a lot of times we, we forget, we talk, we get caught up in the cinematography and the score, but editing is so essential, I mean, to the pace and, and how a story unfolds and, and what the emphasis is on. I think it, mm -hmm. this film is edited quite well. Uh, lots of eyeball shots. Again, this was just at the heels of uh, Leone's monster hits. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You know, well, there's yeah, there's a lot of close-ups in general in this, and uh, I, I believe, like I was saying before, Arcoli, when he's even doing a two-shot, like over the shoulder, he wants to keep the faces tight. I mean, tight, tight, tight. Like the they'll have like half the head uh, cropped off at at some points. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, you know, that's one of those things that kind of keeps you. A little bit on edge, it kind of you know brings you in, makes it a little more claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. Hey, there's the bad phone. <laughs> you want me to talk? Or you get that? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. Um, there's a really great murder scene in an operating room here, and I think not to get into too much, but I don't think it's really a spoiler. But this scene involves uh, a doctor and a blind man who's being operated on, and it. The scene is made much more intense by the fact that we're dealing with someone who can't see what's happening and yeah. how vulnerable they are. Well, that's – and actually we were saying about close-ups on eyes, um, you know, you, have, you get the killer's eyes, you get the false eyes, you have the fact that Wolf is uh, an eye surgeon. Um, and as far as the uh, the voyeurism, you know, he Ercole really, really makes great use of frames within frames mm -hmm. uh, in that regard to uh, – to kind of you know keep things going on, uh, you know, wind through windows, through slats, you know, mirrors. There's that uh, that scene in the, um, I think it's in the bathroom medicine cabinet, mm -hmm. where it's shot you know from the back of the, the uh, the medicine cabinet. There is really nice. So yeah, but the yeah no, there's a, there's a heavy heavy focus on that. Oh yeah, uh, there's a really great. Um, if I reference the film that. <laughs> This is indebted to. Uh, it totally gives it away, so I won't. But there's a nice little twist around the 50-minute mark of this film, yeah. where we start to hey. shift gears, uh, which is you know nice, nice, uh, pleasant surprise for better or worse. I think the film changes uh, mood and it becomes a different film, much more procedural at the back half. But in saying that, I think it's still very effective. Um, and as we'd said in both films. Um, and I don't want to get into too much, but Claudia Lang is in this film. Mm -hmm. I think she's beautiful. I think she works wonderfully, and she really, and it more so to more effect in the other film we're going to talk about because of the role she plays, almost looks like an older version of Nieves Navarro. Yes, 100%. Uh, the house looks great in this. Uh, in England, there's some great nasty kills, which, again, it almost feels like, uh, I think it's Bird or... Um, Black Bay of the Trance, there's a great kill in a house in the dark at the beginning. But I love that. And there's a keyhole in this, so of course it is for peeping. Um, <laughs> that's another great Jalo title, Keyhole. I think it's even Jalo. Keyholes are for peeping. That's a good one. Street nude for your killer. Some great titles, man. So fucking sleazy. So sweet. Is it so sweet, so perverse or something? So sweet. Uh, so sweet, so dead. But isn't there also one so sweet, so perverse? Uh. uh... I think there is. Maybe there is. Um, I won't talk about too much more. 
No, I'm not going to talk about anything else. I'm going to let you talk, and I'm going to look up who did the Knock on Wood cover. And so, <laughs> uh, okay, let's see. Uh, do, 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 do. We went over all that stuff. Uh, the frames. Uh, oh, uh, one thing that uh, Wolf definitely has it spot on right about is don't take the thigh high he thigh high, thigh high boots off oh, God, uh, when you get beautiful. down to it. Yeah, I, that's that's a thing. I'm, I'm you know full disclosure. Too much information time. I like the thigh highs. So yeah. keep them the fuck on, man. Keep them on. Keep them on. And so sweet, uh, so perverse is a jello. Yes. Yeah. Easy. I just looked at and. Yeah, and it is available on YouTube if you want. And I believe that one also has a nice little wig collection in it <laughs> with the, uh, the metallic dreadlocks, yeah, the predator dreadlocks on. Uh... <laughs> John Ross alert. Someone's got to make a movie playlist with white girls in cornrows or braids for John. Yeah. <laughs> uh... Uh, once once we hit England uh, and the countryside in this thing, uh, it, it really takes a turn for – well, one, two things happen. Um, it gets a lot more humorous uh, and it gets a lot more weird. Like the people in England are, are all weirdos uh, when they get to the pub. You know, the first time we meet Hallery, uh, the Luciano Rossi character, uh, the bartender's pushing uh, pins into his uh, his false hand. Yeah. Um, it's just it, – you know, everybody's just – looks interesting and they're all just a little bit off kilter uh so it helps keep things um slightly staggered for uh for scott to be there you know kind of she's in an unfamiliar place so you know she's a little bit uh out of her element yeah and, and this, this helps with that here. exactly exactly it adds yeah. more to it um do, 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 do. amy stewart a-m-i-i stewart nice i love that song anyway uh I used to try and do an imitation of Christopher Walken singing that. I won't. I won't uh, bring that up here. Uh, I won't tee that up here. Uh, do, 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 uh, oh, uh, Scott eats fish with her fingers, and it's you know it, it manages to it, it but it manages to to not be quite gross here. I mean, it's still kind of like well, you're, you're watching it, and you're like, what the fuck? Don't they have forks in England? But at the same time, you know, watching her lick her fingers, that's okay. Um, it is. You know, it is, but. She makes it less gross. Yes, yeah. It's still gross, but she makes it less gross. At least she wasn't pulling the bones out of her mouth, right? Yeah. Well, well, the fish bones, anyway. Oh, there's a lot of time spent showcasing uh, Scott's body in this. It's almost a subplot uh, unto itself. And I think that uh, that plays into, as I said, you know, with the last time, how I think the film is very much one of the one of the themes is that, you know, it's about objects of desire. Uh, and she's an object of desire for Wolf, as well as the diamonds are an object of desire for uh, the uh, the guy who's chasing after. Her and, you know, um, like uh, Captain Lenny, uh, Lenny, Lenny. Uh, who's another weirdo that they meet in England who the first time we see him, he's actually physically pushing his nose up against the glass of the pub uh, to look in is another guy who, you know, is, uh, is it about objects of desire. He owns the boat uh, that Wolf wants. And then, you know, he also wants to be spying on people uh, here, there and everywhere. So uh, I think it's definitely something that's, uh, that's active in the film and, um, you know, nice little, another wrinkle and certainly a giallo element. Uh, going on there. Uh, doo -doo -doo. Uh, 
Inspector Baxter uh, is about as stoic a cop as they come. Um, and, uh, you know, I really liked um, the performance by, what was his name? Uh, Carlo Gentili. Yeah, he's uh, in that role. Dry yeah. Wit. yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, and speaking of dry wit, uh, one of the cops gets a little bit of puke on the top of his uh, head there at a moment. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things you want to be aware of uh, when you're standing underneath windows. Uh, oh, that was a great gross scene. That yeah. Final uh, shower. Yeah, it was, it was very yellow. Very, very yellow. Um, there are... Do, there's a pretty gruesome murder uh, with a switchblade in the, uh, the, the film, which... Uh, you know, it was really, really creepy because the guy just takes his time with it and they don't really cut away from it all that much. Uh, so it made it all that much more effective. Um, there's, uh, duh, duh. yeah, that's, uh, that's all I got to say. I mean, we're, we're pretty much, uh, pretty much hit all the points that I wanted to watch. It's a, you know, it's a really good solid giallo. Uh, I, I'm going to say here that, you know, like the, uh, like the, Oh Lord, the Moralia uh, box set that we did a little while ago. Um, you know that was night, uh, night that Evelyn came out of the grave, and uh, the Red Queen killed several times. And those two films are different in the same way that these two are different. One's much more straightforward uh, of a story, and one is much more um, colorful, not just in terms of actual color, but in terms of characters and the plot and all that. Um, and you know. I think the, the same distinction can be made here, and I think that this one is the one that's a little more straightforward. Uh, it's a little more, you know, um, down to earth uh, than the other one is. Uh, still good though. So um, that's that's pretty much all I got, man. I really haven't got anything to add. Okay, good stuff. Let's get into Maker Breaks. Uh, what do we got? We got Maker Break the blade scene with the chiffon shirt. Uh, intense, vulnerable, uh, just works wonderfully. Uh, my MBT is the construct of the film. I love the way it's put together. I love the red herrings. I love the how it shifts gears halfway through. Um, I love the Paris setting. I just think this this works very well. I don't think it's like an all-time great giallo, but I think it's a wonderful example of what the genre does and does it very competently. Um, and my score is a 7.75 out of 10. I, I do quite like this film. I would say I love it. Um, but I love, a, you know, I, I don't think it's quite at the levels of like a bird or a torso or Solange, but it's, it's no. you know, it's like an intercontinental champ versus a heavyweight champ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the make or break for me is, yeah, it's that home invasion scene with the, uh, the straight razor. Uh, scary and creepy and just it works a hundred percent um mvt for me is the the uh the tone it manages to be tense and lurid and funny all simultaneously uh and you know it just it maintains a line throughout and it never you know it never goes staggering along it um for me the score is going to be 7.25 out of 10 uh yeah like you said it's it's a good example of it it's not quite um it's not quite Pantheon, but it, it's very, very good. Uh, and um, yeah, that's about it. Nice. Let's take a short break. Let's take a long walk off a short bridge and uh, come back and talk about some midnight. It's not the ride. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back. <laughs> 
Sean Roccoli film. It is Death Walks at Midnight. Not High Heels. Or maybe High Heels. Mm. All right. So this film followed our previous film. Um, I think the next year because this one yeah, was 72. such a success. That, uh, let me see if this is recording. Uh, I don't see that it is. So I'm going to hang up and call you back. Okay. Uh, wait. What? I lied. Ooh, it is recording. Pants on fire. Pants on fire. Oh, my pants aren't. My hot pants are on. Hot pants. <laughs> hot pants and high heels, man. That's my kind of Friday morning. Um, I can quit bumbling and stumbling, as in the words of uh, the immortal Chris Berman. Um, I will synopsize this before you get into um, talking about it. Okay. <clears throat> Death Marks at Midnight, 1972. Valentina, a beautiful fashion model, takes an experimental drug as part of a scientific experiment. Science. Science! <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, influenced by the drug LSD, Valentina has a vision of a young woman being brutally murdered. I won't say any more than that. Um, I will just talk about some of the principles. Corbucci was involved in writing it with Gastaldi. What a dream team. Mm-hmm. Coley directs. Nieves Navarro, Simone Andrew, uh, Claudie Lang, Pietro Martalanza. Uh, Luciano Rossi and a cast. Yeah, yeah, we basically trade out Frank Wolf for Pietro Martellanza. Which is a downgrade, a substantial yes. downgrade. Yes, it is. Yeah. So let's uh, let's hear what you thought about uh, Death Walking at Midnight. Ah, uh, well, uh, right from the beginning, you get. I mean, it's almost a perfect sort of rear window, unreliable narrator um, sort of setup because of the uh, the drugs. And uh, the uh, what's his name? The Andrew character, Joe. Um, it really plays up how much of a skeezy he is. Oh, Giobaldi. Giobaldi. Uh, in the well, I think in the in the on the the subtitles it was Joe. So Joe. Um, and he's really just – he's unscrupulous uh, as a reporter for a trashy tabloid magazine, which in and of itself should tell you how scrupulous he is in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just – you know, he starts taking pictures of her with the mask with the mask on because she was going to – the whole idea is that she was going to uh, hide her face uh, while she was doing this. But at the same time, she's doing it in front of a fucking 20-foot wide uh, photo of her head. So uh, yeah, we weren't exactly thinking this all the way through in the first place. We might have wanted to rent a hotel room for this thing, but they didn't. Um, but in in a lot of ways, you know, it starts off with this. Uh, when she sees the the uh, the murder, uh, she sees it, you know, through the window, and she's breathing up against the glass and watching this happen. And, you know, that's the rear window moment, but there's also with the LSD element, um, you get that kind of lizard in a woman's skin uh, angle going on there, so it, it's uh, it really th- that's the thing that I like the most. I like it when when we're not 100% trusting what's going on, when we kind of have to piece a few things together, or you know 
figure out. I mean, we obviously are going to believe her because we're seeing it when she's seeing it. But at the same time, you can't necessarily believe her because we may be seeing what she's seeing, which is unreliable. Absolutely. That kind of thing. It's very, very meta angle uh, that I, I really I, I fall for that every time. Um, do, 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 do. The, oh, uh, there's that uh, the reflection of the uh, the woman being murdered in the glasses in the eyeglasses of the murderer, who, by the way, looks exactly like Phil Spector. Or as I uh, said, Paul, the love child of Paul Williams and Ronnie James Dio. I think indeed. Either way, we can agree he's a diminutive fellow. He is with a very large, featured head. A large head, uh, larger hair, and large sunglasses. He's large and in charge from the neck up. Hopefully, from the waist down for his sake. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a great shot uh, of the uh, the reflection of the the woman being murdered in the glasses. It's one of those things that really, you know, it's one of those signature kind of giallo thr- slash thriller uh, things that you always look for. And he's got a unique weapon uh, with the uh, the spike glove on, which uh, I mentioned before is just like in the uh, the creamy movie. Uh, Creature with the blue hand. Um, so you know, it's, uh, and and the the murder is pretty gruesome. Actually, it's oh, blood yeah. literally uh, splattering on the uh, on the, the uh, camera lens. And so I want to say too, both of these films feature, especially for their time, exceptionally brutal killing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, there was no punches pulled. Uh, yeah, it's very, very. F- um, I don't want to say flat because I don't think they're flat, but a very, yeah, like you said, very just uh, brutal. Uh, realistic, you know, it's realistic in the, in terms of how you know the violence is just happens. Um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, or, or Coley keeps the frame active uh, at all times. There's stuff going on, uh, and you're constantly seeing in this, especially in the first half, uh, Phil Spector walking around in the background, or you know, being behind uh, Susan Scott following her. Or, you know, he's he's always there, even when she's not seeing him. So that's not actually a part of the uh, the story. You know, we're seeing him, uh, so it's nice to see that going on. Um, there is. Uh, oh, this again has a, a nice little sense of humor to it. Uh, it starts off, I thought that uh, it starts off almost being kind of like a screwball comedy uh, in certain ways with the the comedy angle. Uh, it kind of it kind of uh, it kind of um, uh, tapers off uh, towards the end, unlike the the previous film where it, it goes up. Uh, there are oh, there's a uh, that that chest spreader. Uh, hanging on the wall in uh, Scott's apartment, yeah. uh, which you know I don't I don't remember that being really marketed towards women all that much, but I guess it must have been. So that whole I must I must I must increase my bust kind of yeah, attitude. There's, there's nothing wrong with an A cup now and then, though. I mean, hey, ain't nothing wrong with any size. No, exactly. Um, you get. Uh, again, in this one, you get a lot of, uh, of reflections, and probably more so uh, than in the previous film. Yes. And it's okay, – yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I totally cut I was going to say I think it lends itself more to this film because we have to wonder if what we're seeing is perception versus reality. Exactly, and that's where the Claudie Lang uh, character comes in because she is almost a mirror of, of uh, Susan Scott. And she's kind of like uh, the the crazy side, the older crazy side of Susan Scott, the side that you know she can't quite trust that either, but she kind of has to to, to uh, find out to you know what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's that that scene in the asylum um, 
where it's you know it's the insanity of the world you know kind of being trapped in one place uh and that's the big scene that uh I, if i'm recalling right that's the big scene that uh, lang is in um it is the big scene for her and i want to say uh, in a very zom-esque um stream of consciousness i'd love to see a cloudy lang clubber lang <laughs> who wouldn't uh, yeah um, again you know because this is a very very strong story uh, the characters keep bringing up the discrepancies and reasons why uh, Valentina you know may be wrong but it works because these are things that the audience is bringing up at the same time uh, again it's that untrustworthy narrator thing that uh that really lends itself to a uh, mystery of this sort. Um, do, do, do what? Hold on a second. Do you want to get that and I can ramble for a minute? Yeah, please uh, vamp for a little bit. I will vamp. Uh, I wanted to just piggyback on Todd and his comment um, and just say that I think unreliable narrators um, work very wonderfully in competent hands. The problem with either actresses or actors, but unfortunately it tends to fall more on the actress being hysterical um, <clears throat> when there's an unreliable narrator, is they can you can start to tune them out because they start to become too shrieky and um, the hysteronics get to you. But Ercole knows how to balance this quite wonderfully. And again, he has a steely, deter quiet determination with his leading woman and his wife, uh, Nieves mm -hmm. Navarro, that I, I really, uh, I think is wonderfully. Did I hear uh, Todd come back, or is he? Yes, sir, I'm here. Okay, cool, go for it. Um, you get uh, a guy with a dashboard bottle opener, which is uh, really dedication to uh, drinking and driving. Um, yeah. And this is the same guy who, who gives uh, Scott the grass gas or ass ploy uh, in his little shagging wagon. Uh, which unfortunately does not have wall-to-wall -wall carpeting in it, but really, really should have wall-to-wall -wall carpeting in it. Um, we get uh, when she's when Scott is with uh, her her boy toy uh, Pietro uh, Stefano in the film. His character name is Stefano. Uh, the quickest way to get a chicken bed is to try and convince her that she should be a housewife. Um, which just I I haven't used that ploy myself. I'm not 100 percent sure that it would work. But yeah, I don't know how successful you'd be throwing darts at that board. Yeah, <laughs> you'd have to spin somebody around a few times to get them to hit it. Um, yeah, uh, as far as Stefano's art is concerned, um, it's basically blocks of wood uh, with holes cut out of it. And there's a great little comment when he has an art show going on. Uh, somebody's looking at a piece as he's walking by. Uh, and he says, uh, it's a brilliant interpretation of cheese, uh, which just really 100% works for me because uh, that's exactly what it looked like for me. Um, oh, uh, when they get to uh, Dolores' house, there's uh, there's basically an arboreal forest in the, uh, the foyer there, the walkway going in, uh, which just looks like a fucking hell of a lot of shit to maintain uh, and a real pain in the ass to – get anywhere to get into the house uh, although it might make for a good security system I guess uh, but if you got to get to the powder room fast I mean you're screwed uh, yeah you got to bust out the machetes machete machete uh, machete um, machete <laughs> uh, oh uh, I thought that the uh, that part of the reveal maybe comes a little bit too early 
the big, big reveal in this film comes a little bit too early, uh, but only just. It's not enough to derail it, really. Uh, you get the Italian James Brolin and Klaus Kinski in this, in the uh, not the actual Klaus Kinski, the Luciano Rossi interpretation of Klaus Kinski, who has one of the best vests uh, ever in the the world. Yeah, man, that thing just rocks. Doesn't um, Johnny Depp wear a vest like that in Once Upon a Time in Mexico? He does, yeah. And as as does Tra- Danny Trejo, sort of, kind of, in, in uh, Desperado. Nice. So. I thought you were going to say Machete. Oh, no. <laughs> he doesn't uh, wear yeah. any fucking shirt in Machete, man. No, I fucked that one up. Okay. Um, do, 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 it's got a uh, – there's a great final reveal moment um, in the, uh, the climax of this thing. And we also get a, the return of the dummy death. Uh, yes. In this, which is was outstanding, um, but for me, yeah, I mean, like I said, this is more colorful for me because of the the weapon, because of the Phil Spector lookalike, because of uh, the characters that they bring in later, the way that the plot you know goes a little bit more heightened uh, from reality than in, uh, than in the previous film. I like that a little bit more. I like to see that a little bit more. The same way that I did uh, the Red Queen kill seven times over Evelyn, the night Evelyn came out of the grave. I love um, it. I mean, it's so bonkers. Oh yeah, well that, that's and that's the thing that I love about Gialli is that you know when they really go for that pulpy you know balls to the wall um, angle of it, you know, just to to see as much as you can get in, get as crazy as you can, but still, you know, have a a compelling story going on. Because we're not really watching these for characters, per se. Um, Although, you know, the characters do need to be a bit more than, you know, just cardboard cutouts. And I think they are here. Uh, I think they're as well-developed as, yeah, they're as well-developed as they can be. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, visually, this is outstanding. There's that... um, there's that De Palma slash Hitchcock esque uh, shot in the office uh, where the killing happened, and when uh, Valentina goes to investigate it, with the, you know it's that low angle with the, all the ceiling lights on it, and it's just bright white everywhere, and uh, it looks fantastic. Uh, the movie overall looks fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I was about to say it looks fantastic, and I think the variety of shots, the shot composition, as strong as it was in Heels, is even more so in this one. Oh yeah, yeah, much more so. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, the we get uh, Cipriani and somebody else doing the score on this one, and as like before, I am going to completely forget who the fuck it was. Uh, music by uh, Gianni Ferrio yeah. uh, did the uh, the assist on the on the music in this one, and it's a nice score. Uh, it's not quite the same. Uh, it, it's not quite as quality for me as uh, the the previous score uh but it's good it's good it's not like a, a drop off a cliff yeah no <laughs> no no nothing like that um and what else can i say about it uh without giving too much away not really a lot that's uh, that's the notes that i got brother kick it over to you okay cool um let me just sit forward here i was reclining steiner recliner um John Steiner Recliner. What's that? John Steiner Recliner. Yeah. Uh, this looks at the sensationalism of news, the news cycle, and the practice of journalism in Italy can be interesting and colorful, to say the least. And there's some commentary, I think, on that with this. Um, did you mention the fibrous lighting fixation that Italy has? Uh, I did not, but yes, they had that. Yeah, those fiber optics. Yeah, this one. I mean, they just they love it. 
Um, Johnny Ferrio, as you said, scored this like a pro, really quality score. Not as good as Cipriani's, but again, Cipriani's a master. Um, I mentioned it before and I'll mention it again. Seeing a doorbell rung incessantly reminds me of my children. We come home, no one's home. They ring the doorbell 37 times. <laughs> I tell them to stop. They don't. Um, good times. Um, I think Andrew, Simone Andrew, as I mentioned, reminds me of a sleazier Mark Perel in some yeah. ways. Um, but he's good. I think he's good in the film, certainly. Uh, and, and speaking of, again, Peanuts, great line from Navarro uh, to, I believe, Simone Andrew. When she says, how did I ever trust a blockhead like you? <laughs> you so, blockhead. Blockhead. Um, there's a J&B ashtray, which is great. Yeah. Great, great. There's some J&B uh, placement in this, but as, as we had said, it's not just... It's very it's very low-key, yeah. Low-key, absolutely. Uh, as always with Italian film, beautiful people, beautiful architecture, just such production value added just from the country being itself. You know, works wonderfully. Versus, you know, shooting a film in um, Flin Flon, Manitoba or something. Um, so I love, uh, like we just talked about, so the love, the love, the low shot of the abandoned unit she goes across to. Um, and that's where we start to think, why is she losing her mind? Did she see what she saw? And you yeah. mentioned this. You meant, Did you sort of mention it, this as being very sort of Hitchcock-y rear window? Yes. Yeah. 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 And it is. Absolutely. Um Nieves gives good faith. Yeah, I think I think that you know mentioning Hitchcock, I think that had he not been working in America and or England, uh, he would have absolutely been making Gialli. That would have been right up his alley. And you, I think you saw you saw, well, you saw that with, you saw it with Frenzy towards the yeah. end there. I mean, that's I Frenzy's almost a, a British uh, Giallo. My only gripe with Frenzy is when the women get killed. They have the stupid thing where their tongues stick out. Well, yeah, yeah. That's the only. That's story. almost that's almost Hitch's kind of you know tee yeah, kind of yeah. thing. It's too bad, but I love. I think Frenzy and Rabbit Dogs would make make a great double because it's masters showing that they can hang with the young kids. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um. We talked about uh, Cloudy Lang being great. Um, I felt like a piece of the music in this was like Seven Notes in Black, maybe, or so there was something that was reminiscent. I can't recall what it was now. Uh, some of the overhead shots in the asylum are good, or the, the in mental institution or the mental hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the bottle opener on the truck. <laughs> uh, interesting. Um, I think that uh, some of the... Uh, cat and mouse kind of elements with this are really great. Um, sometimes the low body counts work well. Um, as we got into the 80s and the age of excess, it was all about the body count. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a giallo, a well-made giallo, you can, they can be virtually bloodless. You can have one or two killings, and it's enough to... That's all you need doled out. It, you know, it really works well, and I think this... What? I think... I'm sorry. I think it works... I think it works well because you don't... It, you not expecting them to die you're waiting to see who's gonna hey there's that fucking van bottle opener yeah yeah that, um, that was tanner ironically uh messaging me um but uh, you know what i'm saying it you know you're you're a little more on pins and needles because you're like who's gonna die because it's so limited a, a field to pick from uh or is anybody gonna die rather than oh it's a bunch of teens at a summer camp they're all gonna die 
Yeah, you know, right. I think it, it tends to you know keep you a little bit. It, it tends to be be a little more compelling. And there's some uh, in that, that fleshed out characters. Sure, absolutely. Involvement. Um, speaking of emotional involvement, uh, the only moment I was emotionally involved in Stefano was when he was wearing a Canadian tuxedo. Oh yeah, that thing should have been fringe though. What's that? That thing should have been fringe though. Yeah, absolutely. He did up his fringe game. Um, the term I used, uh, as I'd said, it may have been coined before. I don't recall ever hearing it, but specifically this sort of sub-genre of the genre really does feel like stylish hysteria. I think that's a perfect way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what else do we got here that hasn't been said? Not much, but oh, yes. Uh, I might notice, has anyone been typecast more than Luciano Rossi? Uh, <laughs> even Botsufi and um, Luciano Cananacci got to play good guys in films. Um I felt like Duke of Burgundy isn't, and I know Strickland was pretty open about loving uh, the genre, but I feel like some of the the stuff in this reminded me of Duke of Burgundy, some of the mm-hmm. flora and fauna and all that stuff. Um, and I love how, to give credit to the score, because I think the score is really good, um, it feels very Marconi-esque in that you get some of these left-field sounds, like two pieces of woods clacking together or someone... Moaning, it just the way he sort of gets this rhythmic, uh, this rhythm, and the way sort of uh, bizarre sounds um, tend to become very cohesive uh, musically and, and enhance the mood of the film. Uh, you mentioned Dat Vest. Um, we got Bud, Bud Spencer Haymakers near the back end of the film. <laughs> And, yeah, rooftop battles, which, as you said, results in a glorious dummy death. Um, but I do want to... I have to card Riccoli for giving us maybe the least convincing head smash through glass in the history of cinema. <laughs> it's so feeble. It's so... It's laughably... It's laughably bad. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. And, Unfortunately, oh, but... Man, it's just dreadful. Uh, and then we get the Milan Cathedral, which... Just because. I mean, but it's beautiful, so I'm fine to close with that. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, all right. Um, The make or break for me is the opening scene. Uh, It really just sets it up marvelously well. Very well shot, very well edited, very well constructed. Um, And I think that, you know, if you're watching this and you're not into that scene, yeah, you're definitely not going to be into the rest of the film. Um, MVT for me is going to be Ercoli. He really brought it on this one for me. Um, and again, it's not that he was lesser in the, uh, in the previous film, but, uh, I just felt that he, you know, kind of deserved a little bit more for this one, uh, in my opinion. Um, score for me on this one is a 7.5 out of 10. It is, as I said, much more, uh, colorful, much more engaging to me on the level of, um, thematics. Uh, there's, uh, I, as well, for anybody who's read any of my reviews, I tend to want to delve into themes more than anything else uh, on films, and this is the kind of thing that you could really sink your teeth into. So that appeals to me, and I love the uh, the whole metatextual angles to it and that sort of thing. And yeah, no, this this one was really good. Um, if it, uh, this could be getting close to a, a favorite for me. Uh, in the in the genre, I could see that being the case. Uh, and that's about all I got to say, sir. Excelente. Um, make or break scene for me. I love the scene in the institution. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that. I thought it was. 
movie. It just looks great. MVT, speaking of looking great, cinematography, i got to give it up, man. Um, this film is really wonderfully shot, and I think that everything is enhanced uh, above and beyond. You know, this is a genre that's about style, and when you can combine style with competency, uh, as you get with Fernando Arribas's cinematography in this, uh, I'm a sucker for it. Uh, my score is a little, little bit uh, beyond, I suspect, what I suspect... Uh, be the case with some people, but you know, I still love it. It's a 7.25. What number are you? 7.75? 7.5, yeah. 7.5. So we're pretty yeah. close. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good one, though. And again, I think it shows the other side of the coin with the hysteria a little bit more. Uh, but but palatable hysteria, you know, compared to some shrieking you know, fools. But uh, yeah, that's, that's the big show, man. Um, next week, actually this week, um, <laughs> uh, we're going to be getting into a couple films. Uh, I want to bring Mr. De Palma back. So we're going to be getting into some, uh, some wild style with, uh, De Palma's The Fury. I think it's an underappreciated film. It fucking goes for it. And I'd love to talk about it. So, uh, maybe, maybe, um, Douglas and Cassavetes. And Irving making their GGTMC debuts. Uh, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's nuts. Three heavyweights. Well, two heavyweights and one solid actress, I guess. I don't think she was mm-hmm. a timer, but she was. I like her. Um, yeah. And what are you picking, my friend? I am picking from 1968, *The Living Skeleton*, directed by Hiroki Matsuno. Um, it is a very interesting film. I think uh, I think you're gonna like it. It's it's in the uh, horror game to Shochiku uh, box set from Criterion. Uh, so yeah, uh, we're gonna be going there. I don't want to say too much about it because I mean to say anything about it is really uh, giving it away. Uh, but yeah, I, I wanted to, I wanted to do this because I've been wanting to get I've been wanting to get you on this one for a long time. Yeah, because I've only um, seen one or two films from that box set. So. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for me, I'm going to, you know, a little bit of uh, showing my cards here. Out of that entire box set, this one's my favorite. So. Nice. Very nice. Oh, man, I can't wait. Uh, this is going to be fun. A um, little bit of uh, Dick Swinging Insanity from De Palma. A little bit of uh, kind of bonkers insanity from uh, Japan. So. Yes, sir. Very cool. Uh, so, uh, as always, uh, thank you everyone for listening. Um, it's great to be back. It's great to be chatting with uh, my guy TC here, and we're gonna have Sammy back in the saddle next week. Um, he uh, he was tied up this week. You know, things come up. Uh, things come up. Um, there's that uh, coin drop again. He actually, speaking of coins, it's funny that text came in because he was uh, in a Qbert tournament. Um, in uh, Jakarta, of all places, and who's defending his, uh, his world champion, his Cubert World Championship? So you know he's got a, he's got the hardware. He's got to bring. Got to watch out for them coiled up snakes. Uh, yeah, he's got to watch out. Well, he's got his cowboy boots on, so nice. He'll be all right. Um, all right. So uh, with that, there is only one thing left to say. Adios. Adios. Cha cha cha. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.